This week's podcast brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, the leader in wetlands conservation going all the way back to 1937. Think about that. That's a lot of history of conserving waterfowl habitat and the uh, ducks and geese that we all are so passionate about. Uh, I'm a proud member and I also serve on the Dallas DU committee. Uh, I encourage you to get plugged in with your local Ducks Unlimited chapter uh, and, and join this great group of folks who are passionate about duck hunting and waterfowl conservation. For more info, head over to ducks.org. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born in war, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists. Think about that. Targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Don't get me wrong, I bet we'd have a good time. I'm sure we'd really make that music right. I'll break her heart if she don't set me free. Don't go expecting too much of me. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Little Eric Beatty Band kicking things off for us on episode 683 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being a part of today's show. I do appreciate you tuning in as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. And there's no place that I'd rather be than right here doing just that with you fine folks. So appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you, and I'll tell you all about it momentarily. But man, the dog days and the, the doldrums of summer have set in. I think this is the slowest time of the year when it comes to hunting. Uh, fishing, still a lot of great fishing, especially if you're hitting the salt water, which I will be doing in a couple weeks. Super pumped about that. Uh, but yeah, it's, man, it's just so dang hot, too hot to really call predators. You're talking about waking up and starting to sweat with temperatures already in the eighties by 8 AM. And uh, it, heck the girls soccer practice got canceled this week because it was too hot, too hot. Are you kidding me? We're raising a generation of wussies. We never canceled practice when I was a kid because it was too stinking hot. That's absurd. Here's your trophy. Thanks for showing up. You didn't do a damn thing, but here's a participation trophy anyway, you wussies. Of course, no, I don't want my girls to overheat, but but too hot. Put on some sunscreen, uh, have a water bottle, take a couple breaks, you'll be fine. Actually, we wore pads, did two-a-days. This is just soccer practice. Uh, but yeah, we did that stuff in 100-degree heat. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, just a good old boy get off my lawn syndrome, I guess. Maybe it's for the betterment of the kids who, by the way, if your kids play soccer, uh, they don't let them head the ball until they're like 12 years old anymore either. 
it's just so foreign thinking about the way it used to be compared to uh, how things are today. But it is what it is. Anyway, what are we doing today? Let me tell you. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos. I think I'm rocking the uh, Power Llama this morning. Uh, whatever brew you've got going, pour yourself another cup because we are ready to rock and roll. And we've got uh, a roundtable discussion set up for today. Two great guests, authorities on the topic, which we're going to dive into. Uh, Ryan Muckenhern of Vortex Optics along with John McAdams of the Big Game Hunting Podcast. Um, we're going to talk match ammunition and bullet selection for hunting. Should people be using match ammo for big game hunting? Why or why not? And also, what goes into selecting the correct bullet for your rifle and what you intend to use it for? We're going to talk wound channels, how to break down an animal with a well-placed bullet, and, uh, and some crazy things that we've seen bullets do once they've entered an animal. So much to discuss concerning a topic that I think you'll find very interesting. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. How about two boxes of Hornady's Match Ammo 6.5 Creedmoor? Uh, these are 142 grain bullets i do believe uh, but yeah two boxes we'll give away today since we're talking match ammo and i just happen to have a couple boxes right here so just email the word ammo that's ammo to lone star outdoors show at gmail.com and you are entered into this week's giveaway I mean, who doesn't like free ammunition so throw your hat in the ring uh, we'll take it all head on after the break with John McAdams and Ryan Muckenhern on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. If I wasn't born on the wrong side of the tracks, I never would have felt this way. Promising each other. It's that time of the year where you might want to try to kick off a new year with a fitness journey. Cryo and More has all your holistic healing needs with cold therapy, heat therapy, and pressure therapy, which shortcuts the time you have to spend recovering from your workout or minimize the muscle soreness you feel from physical activity. Cryo Skin is a body hack that speeds up the death cycle of the fat cells using non-invasive technology that uses heat and cold to eliminate fat cells. Your greatest wealth is your health. Visit cryoandmore.com or head over to the location off of Virginia Parkway in McKinney. If you're looking for a new gun safe, you need to check out the Performance Firearm Storage Solutions from Securit. Unlike traditional safes, Securit products are designed to perform for you. They're lightweight, so you can discreetly store them in any room in the house, and the interior is completely customizable to fit your guns and gear. I would know, I've got four of them. Their fast access storage system keeps my guns and optics organized so they never touch each other or get damaged, and I'm never more than an arm's length away from a firearm. The best part, they're always running great sales. Head over to securitgunstorage.com backslash cable to see their latest promotion, and you can thank me later. Head to church on Sunday, forgiveness for our sins. Walk back to the house just to make some more again. Mama whispered, boy, I'm watching what you One of my favorites there from Matt Castillo for you. The name of that one. Cable Smith, welcome in everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thank you so much for being here today. This segment of the show brought to you by the Vortex Sunslayer lineup. It's like air conditioning yourself in the middle of the summer when you're outdoors 
lightweight, breezy, UV protection. Uh, some of them have hoods. You can flip that up, protect the back of your neck as well. So whether you're fishing, uh, you're at the range, or maybe, well, I don't do this, but maybe you shed hunt. Eh, maybe you do. The Vortex Sun Slayer lineup is perfect for all of those applications. And here's the cool thing. You'll get 20% off, not just the Sun Slayer, but all Vortex Wear apparel when you use my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at vortexoptics.com. Well, we've certainly got an interesting topic to get into today. So joining us for a roundtable discussion on bullet selection and performance, it's my pleasure to welcome Vortex's Ryan Muckenhern and John McAdams of the Big Game Hunting Blog back to the show. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having us, Cable. We've got a lot to talk about today, but, um, well, actually, Ryan and I were talking off there, uh, trying to get him to uh, take the plunge and, and go to Africa someday. John just got back from Africa. I saw some uh, warthog tusks and that jealous. was, let's see here, where is it? Yep, that was for my very first, that was the very first African animal I ever took. Yeah, it looks like so, a fine warthog too. It was a good one. I got real, it was one of those things that um, he just kind of threw himself out there in front of me. And I didn't <laughs> know how lucky I was until many years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, John, I, I know you've been before. Um, what safari number was this for you? This was my fifth safari, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I kind of took a page out of your book and I went uh -huh. over there with a couple of podcast listeners. And uh -huh. uh, so I hunted, but I was mainly focused on them, making sure they had a good time. And this was also one of those things where, since I'd been over several times before, I'd, I had taken a lot of things before and mm -hmm. I have a nice kudu and a nice warthog and all that. And I could have shot another one of those and some other you know, zebra and things like that over there. But, um, yeah, I wasn't interested in, in, in doing that. Uh, so I ended up shooting a blue wildebeest and an impala over there. But man, the other guys just went crazy. Got mm. buffalo, sable, inyala, kudu, all kinds of stuff down. It was a busy week and it was a lot of fun being over with them. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't, I, I knew you'd been. I didn't realize you'd been five times. I think I just wrapped up my sixth trip uh, with seven and eight already on the books for the next two years. Ooh, um, there you go. Yeah. But same thing. Like I was doing blue diker hunt, you know, with dogs. Uh, and we did two days of, of bird hunting, which people don't typically go to Africa to do that. Some, just some different stuff. Meanwhile, two of the guys that went with me, Ryan and Daniel, they'd never been, and they just went nuts. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's so cool to see your buddies experience what you did, you know, on your first safari, wide-eyed and just uh, the world is your <laughs> oyster. And, and, you know, I'll never get tired of going to Africa, but like you, you know, you've shot a bunch of the species already. So now you know, a lot of those, I'm going back and trying to get them with a bow at this point, mm -hmm. uh, change it up a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, where, what part of South Africa were you in? So I was in Limpopo. Okay. And you yeah. were in, uh, on the East Quas Cape. Oh, East Cape. Okay. Got yeah. it. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ryan, we got to get you over there someday, man. It's, uh, I, I'm you guys between the two of you, 13 years, uh, or 13 trips to Africa. And I'm over here to like or 10 or whatever. Like, well, okay. I've never yeah. been. So, <laughs> well, you like to shoot stuff and it's a rich environment. So I do. Yeah. yeah. I spiral horned antelopes. I am absolutely fascinated by them. Um, mm -hmm. and I can't even remember when, when that fascination started, it was pretty young lad. Um, and, and I think it was probably the first time I saw a picture of a bush buck and I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that thing looks like it crawled out of um, some mythical world and uh, yeah. it's got a face on it. That's just interesting. And I want them all. Yeah. Probably never yeah. be able to afford to kill a bongo, but. Uh, oh, well, yeah, you, you and mean, me both. Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk to Vortex about a raise, you know, it's. Uh, 
they're that's like otherworldly expensive hunting um when you start looking at critters like that and they're on like the affordable list of the otherworldly expensive yeah uh, or like a, a lord uh derby lord derby and yeah. yeah. uh or maybe a mountain mountain in yala in uh, ethiopia who I, the fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollar price range per animal is not something. Yeah. I mean, I have three kids that need to go to, hopefully, go to college, right? Uh, <laughs> hopefully, um, Lord willing, or, or if they want to be mechanic, whatever. Yeah. But I can't justify that at this no. point in my life. Uh, it, it's it's crazy. It's cool though to think about that that critters like that exist that many folks mm -hmm. have never even seen, heard of, or or could even rationalize that an animal looks like that lives mm -hmm. in a place like that and does, does that kind of stuff. Capra species have me a bit, uh, uh, Twitter paid it as well, but, uh, yeah. most of those are unobtainium. So I just like to look at them. So. But those, those jungle antelope, the Sitatunga and the bongo yeah. are so beautiful. Oh, and yeah. I've seen a Sitatunga in person and it was actually on a high fence place in Texas. And I was like, wow. yeah. and I didn't know what it was at first. This was a decade ago before I'd ever yeah. been to Africa. Uh, but you're talking about, you know, going to the Congo or I think for those mountain in Yala, John, where do you have to go? Ethiopia or Ethiopia something? is the only yeah. place where you can hunt them. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to deeper, more remote, unexplored. Eh, everything's explored at this point in time, but just, you know, less inhabited um, parts of Africa. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's something I would like to do at some point in my life is like go to Tanzania or mm. some, some Zambia. Um, something like that. But the reason why I'd want to go there is to hunt a leopard, which again, puts me in that, uh, <laughs> that price range of yeah. looking yeah. at my kids and be like, sorry. Uh, <laughs> hey, so, you only live once. Yeah. So, uh, Ryan, what is your favorite thing to hunt? Oh man. Um, it's really tough. I got introduced to the West in about 2007, mm -hmm. um, with mule deer and pronghorn uh, and have become innately fascinated with them. Um, the regions they get inhabit, um, chasing them. I'm, I'm nuts about them, but I'll say the same thing about like wild turkeys. And, and like, if, if, if I die and, and, uh, there's a heaven that I go to, like, and if I can pick whatever I do for the rest of eternity, I'm, I'm very juxtaposed between, um, pronghorn, mule deer, wild turkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to be an obsessive waterfowler, uh, before I really got hard into big game, um, did a lot of that, um, do a bit of upland hunting now. Um, after about a decade long hiatus, ruffed grouse, I'm, I'm nuts about, but it'd be hard pressed not to want to spend the rest of my days chasing Western species, pronghorn mm -hmm. and mule deer. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. And John, what about you? Uh, pronghorn is something that I've really developed a fascination with. I used to live in El Paso and when I moved out there from Washington state, I had a goal. I wanted to shoot a mule deer, an elk, a pronghorn. And uh, a coos deer and a javeline all when I was there. And as uh, I got the, uh, the pronghorn was the second animal in that group that I got. And I was like, man, this was so much fun. I want to do it again. And mm -hmm. now I've done it three times and looking for a fourth and fifth time. I want to try and get them in every state that you can hunt them and, yeah. and all that. It's, it's, they're really cool, fun species to hunt. And they're delicious. They are. Oh, yeah. And, and thank you for saying that because when I started hunting them, so many people were like, man, you don't want to eat those things. Those stinky goats. Tastes like and, sage. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> at least in my house, anyhow, pronghorn is the first thing to go. And you only get 40, 45 pounds of meat off one if you're yeah. like very, very judicious in your trimming. Uh, and and I've eaten pretty much every cut of a pronghorn like you would a steak. And I prepared them in any manner of ways. And I just, I'm over the moon about them. I grind them. I, I like pronghorn burger. Uh -huh. uh, it's it's just absolutely fantastic. And I, I drew an archery tag this year. 
Um, and then I drew uh, a rifle tag as well. Um, so I've got two states. I have three total tags. I'm I'm very much so looking forward to getting back out after him. I've only shot, I've, I've shot two, both in Texas, um, but I do have pronghorn points in like four Western states, sure. which I, yeah. which I have enough to draw in probably Wyoming and Montana, maybe mm-hmm. Colorado at this point. Um, so yeah, you guys are inspiring me to, the only thing is it's like, it's right around the same time as elk hunting or within a couple of weeks and being from Texas to go out of state twice in September or, you know, late August and then September. Yeah. I got to play my cards right, right. With, sure. uh, my better half who, right. <laughs> yeah, I w- it was, it was dicey when I, I said, I'm going to go to Africa. It's 12 day commitment and then come home for th- three days, kiss the kids and then go to Canada and go bear hunting. But that it worked out just because, um, Canada wouldn't let us unclean unvaccinated folks in for so long. And then sure. they opened up. So sure. it was, that was a hunt that was, you know, three years in the making sure. maybe four, And, uh, and yeah, the kit, we, took my cameraman and we're going to uh put together a little vortex selects for that one. Oh, cool so, yeah yeah what province it was on vancouver island oh British very Columbia. cool yeah beautiful country for sure mm-hmm. um well what i really wanted to talk about today is and it stems from a, uh, a vortex 10-minute talk on y'all's youtube channel it was uh you and our old friend mark boardman uh ryan and y'all were talking about match ammunition for hunting and so, you know, I, I've done this Hornady one time I, you know, they would send me stuff for X hunting trip or whatever. And I needed some, uh, I don't remember what caliber it was, but a, a box showed up like multiple box, 10 boxes and half of it was match ammunition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't, I've never shot competitively. I was like, oh, cool. I'm just going to take this hunting. Probably not the smartest thing to do. Um, but listening to you guys conversation was very educational. And I thought, Hey, we need to dive into this on the show. So, um, both of you guys have shot animals with match ammunition, I'm assuming. Yeah. So I've never actually shot an animal with, with okay. match ammunition. It's something I've shot a lot of, but I've never actually hunted with it myself. I've seen okay. it happen, and I've heard a lot of stories of things going right and things going wrong with it, though. Yeah. Okay. I think I've, I've primarily shot – I know I've shot a whitetail with it, and I've shot uh, – basically what I was using before was feral hogs anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm not the, the expert on what it did or didn't do internally. Ryan, I know you've killed animals with it. Yeah, no, a number of them. Uh, I would say first and foremost, it's not my primary selection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I would say firmly seated on the other side of the fence from bullet selection. I, I prefer, if I'm being very particular, I prefer a homogenous bullet design like a Barnes um, TTSX or an You're LRX. A copper guy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Through and through. Uh-huh. Um, no pun intended. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So how did you get into a situation where you were hunting with match ammunition? Uh, well, which time, I guess is a good question. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth on this one. Um, a little bit of backstory about how I came into using the very tough bullets for not very tough critters. Um, the younger version of me made a poor caliber. Well, I'll back up. Not a poor caliber selection, a poor projectile selection for caliber, uh, on a whitetail. And this is a, a Northern Minnesota whitetail doe. So this is not like this was a hunt of a lifetime situation. I shot this doe with a projectile that was, I will just flat out say not designed for big game. Right. Mm -hmm. But at that point in time in my life, I was subscribing to the theory that I want to dump all the energy in the animal because that's what kills it. And, um, I was also in favor of shooting structure and, uh, again, the, the young and impressionable mind. 
And so I'm still in favor of shooting for structure. Uh, what I'm talking about is like scapula, um, mm -hmm. uh, joints, et cetera, a large bone structure, front half of the animal, try to break them down. And what I ended up with is abysmal penetration, uh, more or less a single lung collapse, and then a very long and um, quite honestly, like disgusting recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't sit well with me. I'm not particularly fond of, of killing things despite being an obsessive hunter. Um, and when I do it, I, I really want to be as ethical as possible. And I, I came back from that after taking that critter apart and seeing exactly what happened kind of three-dimensionally. And I said, okay, there's, there's a better solution somewhere. I had only recently started hand loading, um, at like a, a, a fairly regular level and started pursuing bullets that were tougher, that were, if I was going to shoot a scapula, um, I was going to get through that scapula and then I was going to get through the other scapula if it was, mm. if it was in the way of that bullet's path and ultimately settled on, um, the Barnes TSX and then a bullet they used to make called the MRX, which is no longer, um, as like this absolutely fantastic projectile that did everything that I wanted out of it. And then kind of kept that up. And I, I played with other bullets because things are fascinating to me. And, you know, I see a, a new bullet come out that, um, you know, market some sort of neat attribute or merit to it. And I think, well, that's cool. I'd, I'd like to go test that on, on a critter and, and see if it lives up to its hype. And, you know, in, th in throughout the years, occasionally I'll have um, a rifle come up that I, I didn't have enough time to work up a load with one of these, uh, you know, heavier constructed bullets that I favor, or it just didn't shoot it, but I really wanted to take that rifle out. So then I would pursue a projectile that does shoot. Um, and in many instances, um, these match profile bullets and, and match grade ammunition shoot famously out of modern rifles. And I still believe that the, the projectile that shoots most accurately out of your rifle is probably the most ethical to use barring. We're not using like a full metal jacket or something like that. Something that doesn't have any expansion at all, because if I can place the bullet in the right spot, um, with a higher degree of, of reliability and accuracy, uh, I'm going to end up killing that critter. Mm -hmm. And um, so bullets like Hornady's ELDX, um, I've, I've never shot a burger at game. Um, I've shot uh, Sierra Match Kings at Whitetails, uh, and they work fine. I think I shot a pronghorn with a Sierra Match King as well. Um, those two bullets in particular uh, as the match profile selection for them. And all those critters that I shot at, Deader in a doornail. I cooked them. I ate them. Um, there was not any wild recovery stories. Um, you know, bullet placement was exactly where it needed to be. And, and the end result was a, a dead critter. But I think there's some concessions uh, that we as shooters and, and outdoorsmen and uh, hunters should make when we're using those projectiles. And, and namely, it's tissue and structure that we have to get through to, to place a bullet somewhere. I have to be mm -hmm. a little bit more selective about my shot angles specifically. Right. And we'll talk about some of those angles and specific outcomes of, of bullet performance in certain situations after the break as we really get things going here. Uh, that segment brought to you by Stealth Cam and the new updated command app. It now tells you what animal is in your photo and categorizes your photos accordingly. If there's a hog, labels it as a hog, white-tailed deer, turkey, raccoon you name it and uh all just some of the cool features uh moon phase so much stuff incorporated into the updated command app uh, it's free to download and is compatible with every 
uh, cellular stealth cam model. We'll continue the conversation with Ryan Muckenhern and John McAdams after the break on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. That's why God loves cowboys. I believe there's a place in his heart. As when the herd needs tending, fences need mending, he knows they'll work hard on his great big ranch called life. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Time to tell you about Protect Products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, they don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. America! Heck yeah, except I don't think that's what he says. Uh, but damn, it feels good to be an American. Happy 4th of July to you and yours. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, thanks for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. We've still got Vortex's Ryan Muckenhern and John McAdams of the Big Game Hunting blog here. Uh, much more to discuss concerning our topic on match ammunition used for hunting purposes and uh, overall bullet performance. But first, this segment brought to you by NUMA, geared for the outdoors. Uh, here's the cool thing about NUMA. They offer a lifetime guarantee and warranty on all of their hunting apparel. Seems absolutely insane considering that is about the thing I abuse the most when it comes to things I take into the field. What's on my body? Well, I'm crawling around. I'm hopping over barbed wire fences. I'm getting snagged on mesquite. So to offer a lifetime warranty seems insane, but that's what they do. And you can find their entire lineup of outdoor apparel at NumaOutdoors.com. All right, uh, Ryan, John, thanks for sticking around. Uh, I know Ryan has shot animals with match ammunition. John, you mentioned that you haven't, but you have shot it quite a bit. You know, so match ammunition, just like the name, is normally constructed, and everything about that design is based purely to give you the absolute best accuracy that you can get, right? Oftentimes, especially with something, say, like the uh, Hornady ELD match, for instance, it's also designed to have a very, very high ballistic coefficient, so very aerodynamic bullet. And so everything about that means, like I said, it is optimized for that. That doesn't mean that it is going to be bad on game, but that means since they are optimizing it for a high BC 
and for accuracy that they're not putting other factors into it or other features into it that are going to deliver the sort of terminal performance that you'd expect out of a hunting bullet. And it was really for that reason that we have bullets like the ELTX and the Federal Terminal Ascent and whatnot now, because say 10 years ago, thereabouts, when quote unquote long range shooting started becoming more popular, the original guys doing that were all doing it with target bullets. And when it worked, it worked great. And when it didn't, uh, it didn't, but they had, you know, that's really all they had. If you wanted to shoot an elk at 800 yards, you had to use a match bullet because that was the only thing accurate enough to really give you consistent uh, performance where you could hit something out that far. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And so for that reason, you started seeing the bullet companies make bullets like the ELTX and uh, the Nosler Acubon long range and things like that, that were uh, giving you. Uh, many of those same benefits that the match bullets did, but were also designed to give you better terminal performance on game. And so everything that you do to one of those bullets to inhibit expansion in one way or another, it's just one more thing that you got to do. And it's not to say that those bullets can't be accurate because they, they can be man, the ELDX in particular. Right. But um, since you're trying to do two things at once, that means you're not as good at uh, one of them as you would be if you were just focusing on that one. So over the aggregate, say a million ELDX rounds, they're going to be probably more accurate than a million, uh, excuse me, ELD match rounds are going to be more accurate than a million uh, ELD uh, X rounds. Like that. Right. What that really means is normally a match bullet is, say, take the ELD uh, match I keep talking about here. It is a very, very thin jacket and it has a real yeah. sleek profile. That's something I learned on, you know, listening to the 10 minute talk. I had no idea that, that you could, you know, slim down the, the jacket casing Mm-hmm. and somehow increase um, performance accuracy. And it's just easier to create a jacket that is very thin and the same thickness all the way through and have it be very accurate and consistent than it is to make a bullet like the ELDX that has a taper jacket that starts out thin at the nose and then gradually gets thicker, and then you have that interlockering and whatnot. Those bullets are fantastically accurate, but if you're going to go shoot a match, at a thousand yards or whatever, most people are going to take a match bullet like the ELD match instead of the LDX. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for that reason, though, if you're dealing with a real thinly jacketed bullet like that, that doesn't have any other uh, expansion inhibiting features like that taper jacket or an interlock ring or a partition or a bonded core or something like that, uh, that means you can run into issues sometimes where you have dramatic expansion. And that comes at the expense of penetration, like Ryan talked about earlier. Sometimes everything goes great. Like I actually, in preparation for this uh, discussion last week, I had a uh, 147 grain ELD match uh, ammo uh, for my 6.5 Creedmoor. I shot it into some ballistic gel just to see what, what it would do. And the wound track into that bear gel was almost identical to what you'd see with a similar uh, cup and core bullet, hunting bullet like that. It was great. Good penetration good expansion but nothing ridiculous or anything like that so like i said it could work great and when it works great it's awesome but you run into problems sometimes due to that real thin jacket where especially if you strike a bone you can have a case where the bullet goes completely to pieces and instead of penetrating 20 inches it it penetrates six inches into the Mm -hmm. animal and you may not penetrate deep enough to reach the vitals on it uh, from a conventional shot angle, never mind a very steeply quartering shot angle or something like that. 
So that's kind of the long and the and the and the short of it there. And and I'm sure we'll go into some more details about some more specific examples and things like that here as we uh, as we go on. So yeah. So okay. It's mostly about playing the angles. If you're going to shoot, if you're going to hunt with match ammunition, you better wait until the animal's completely broadside because that bullet is less likely to mushroom, less likely to have that expansion. It could just, like you said, it could just shatter on impact. From a, yeah, from a controlled standpoint, like uh-huh. mushroom, yes, expand, yes, but potentially too rapidly. Mm. And so if you're at a hard angle, um, you're not getting into that vital zone. So we have like a, we'll call it a detonation, not detonation as an incendiary, but you know, a, a pop premature to getting to the good stuff. And that's not to say that it's guaranteed that's going to happen either. Sometimes it'll work fine, but yeah. just like on average, a match bullet is probably going to be a little bit more accurate than a traditional hunting bullet. On average, a tougher hunting bullet is going to give you better penetration and more controlled expansion, more weight retention, things like that. So, I mean, and, and going back to the kind of the uh, origin of the conversation, why do hunters choose, why would you choose match ammunition to hunt with? Do you think it's mostly just uh, it maybe, and especially during the pandemic, right? When you couldn't find ammunition and just like, Oh, there's six, five Creedmoor. Boom. Uh, it says match on it. I don't care. I don't have any ammunition. Uh, do you think it's just kind of like by default guys get put in that situation or do you think they actively choose to say, Oh, this is the most accurate. Therefore I'm going to hunt with it. Personally, I think both. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I can't speak for everybody in, in that thought process, but I, I think that there's like an ethos surrounding hyper accuracy. Um, and, and then taking that from, uh, you know, a static range into the field and hunting. And, there, and I've, I've had this debate innumerable times with folks, um, that either agree or disagree with my, my personal viewpoint on projectile selection. And like, if I was going to only pick one, it would only be, you know, brand X. Um, I guess proponents of that, they're like, well, I, I absolutely want the most accurate solution, the most consistent solution. I'll take care of bullet placement. I'll take care of, of making sure that I don't, I don't have to worry about going through, you know, 20 inches of non-vital tissue to hit 10 of vital. Um, I'll wait for that broadside presentation. Uh, and so those, I think, are, are the folks actively pursuant of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, again, I, I, don't, I don't know that it's incorrect logic, right? Um, and especially talking with shooters in different parts of the world, um, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, parts of Europe um, that I've chatted with, that's like it. That's all they use if, if they mm-hmm. can, if they don't have like an allowance uh, or a, a regulation on lead core or anything like that. Um, they're crazy about it. And, and they're taking different shots. Uh, I think that a lot of us may in the U S on a regular basis, neck and head is not out of the question, um, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mark and I had alluded to this, we were chatting or Mark had been chatting with some folks from New Zealand about just target opportunity. And, and if you're hunting a concession or a property in which let's say you're hunting feral goats and you have 50 of them to pick from versus I was in Wyoming a few years ago hunting pronghorn and I saw nine or so pronghorn on the entire hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a target rich environment and you end up with a less than optimal shot opportunity, but you know that there's probably going to be another one. You pass over that shot that you might have to try to drive a bullet through a bunch of non-vital tissue into vital tissue and you wait for another one and then your match bullet is sound. I also think there's people that, that pick it up off the shelf because it says the caliber designation and that matches what their gun is chambered in and mm-hmm. and they may not have put any further thought into it 
Um, you know, we've seen that we do a, a hunter site in here at Vortex twice a year. Um, and we have folks come out with any number of different ammunition choices. Um, and so I think, I think some of it is just, it was what was available and some of it's definitely a, a, a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as a copper guy and, and mm -hmm. you shoot copper because you believe in the performance, not because Deb Howland said, we all got to switch from, you know, lead shot bullets to uh, non-toxic, which for is, for me, uh... it's, it's purely terminal <laughs> performance. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, is there a effective range where yes. the copper is now outperformed by say an ELDX or something like that? Absolutely. Um, and, and this just isn't copper. <clears throat> copper is, uh, I think, going to highlight this the most though. So you need, you need appropriate velocity to initiate expansion, to, to mm -hmm. deploy the pedals of that bullet and get it opened up and, and continue its, its track through um, with devastation anyways. It'll, it'll continue through if you don't hit that velocity threshold, um, if you're under it, um, but it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so, yes, I mean, once you start extending those distances and we start lowering that velocity um, on impact, um, projectiles like an ELDX or a Burger um, are, are very, very likely to outperform it um, from a terminal standpoint. And actually, at, at the further reaches of that, um, that distance component there, they'll start behaving a bit more like a bonded bullet would. If we don't have an impact velocity high enough to like completely deconstruct the projectile, and I'm talking like shearing off bits of jacket, um, uh, core jacket separation or delamination of the projectile, they do hold together, interestingly, fairly well um, mm -hmm. because we've lowered that impact velocity. Not so low that they won't expand, but I, I think well beyond what uh, a, a Barnes TTSX or an LRX or a Hornady GMX or CX uh, or Nosler E-tip or um, uh, Trophy Copper would reliably deploy. And then with most of these copper projectiles out there, um, save for some pretty high-end uh, machine-turned bullets, you're usually going to take a BC hit as well, just the nature of the bullet design and, and profile and, and um, you know, just what that bullet's made out of um, compared to a cup and core design. Um, and so because you're at a BC disadvantage, you're also not carrying that velocity as far as you would with, say, a match profile bullet, and you're going to shore that distance up quite a bit. And what personally I do is I look at what the published minimums for reliable expansion are for a given projectile. I tack on about 100 feet per second. Um, I then look at my drop charts at, at um, whatever DA or elevation band that I'm going to be at. And at that threshold, that's my maximum distance of engagement, reg mm -hmm. regardless of my ability as a shooter. Well, I'm certainly enjoying the conversation. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and pick it up right where we left off. That segment of the show brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. No group does more when it comes to furthering the message that hunting is conservation. Uh, and by the way, they're also fighting day in and out in D.C. and abroad to protect our rights as sportsmen and women. Uh, for more info, if you'd like to join our ranks, head over to safariclub.org. We'll be right back. I'm Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, a full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. 
Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW? Then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Why do I write songs? Why can't my heart shut its mouth? Why can't I move on and give a fair chance to someone new? Why can't I fall out and love you? There's a little Reed Southall band bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you, and we've still got John McAdams and Ryan Muckenhern here with us for our roundtable on match ammunition's performance when being used for big game hunting. And we'll get back into that momentarily. This segment, though, is brought to you by Armasite and the 640 Contractor. Why not light up the night, guys? If you're looking for something that will be a game changer in your pursuit of feral hogs and predators, the 640 contractor is where it's at. Uh, the best image quality I've ever seen in a thermal optic, uh, diverse color palette, and that user-friendly interface. That you know, that's one of the things. Like it's dark outside, you need to be able to control the unit without having to turn a light on. Some of the other models I've tried over the years have been completely cumbersome in that regard. Uh, not the 640 contractor. Uh, you can find it right there at Armorsite.com. All right, picking it back up with John and Ryan. Uh, and Ryan, where we left off, you know, you were talking about your, I guess, where your ability intersects with performance on copper projectiles, which you're a big fan of. And I think that's about in that 600-yard uh, range for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've with got a couple copper. of rifles that'll that'll maybe skirt over that line a little mm-hmm. bit, but that's a long ways I, yeah. for me personally. I, I, I don't shoot animals farther than that. I've... In Africa, I've shot one thing at like 650 yards. Sure. And I've shot at a wildebeest at I think 800. And my pH, he was like, sorry, I called the wrong wrong wind. He's sure. like, shot right over it. Yeah. And those are the two longest shots I've taken. Yeah. Um, I enjoy, I like shooting 400, 500 yards. Like, yeah. I, is I can do that pretty effectively, certainly ethically. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, in Texas, John, our typical white-tailed deer shot is is 200 yards. I'm sure it's very similar in Wisconsin, or you know. Oh yeah. Uh, certainly in, in in the Midwest. Um, so I don't I don't know if at 200 yards, is are you really losing any performance with a, with match ammunition? Uh, personally, I think depending on the cartridge that you're launching that projectile out of, you could mm. be, 
you could be in, this is my experience. I'm not stating this definitively, but my experience has, has shown me that in at closer ranges with bullets that have these thin taper jackets, um, you're usually impacting with higher muzzle or higher impact velocity. And you end up with that explosive result. Um, mm. my, my most fantastic necropsy to date, six, five out six, uh, actually improved. So it's a pretty high step in cartridge. It was pushing 140 class bullet at 3150 mm. from the muzzle with 199 yard frontal shot on a pronghorn. And for nobody who's dissected a pronghorn, uh, or for somebody who hasn't, uh, they're, they're pretty fair critters. Uh, there's not a lot of, of constitution to them. Mm-hmm. That bullet made it just a little bit deeper than my finger could reach into the hole. Oh and gosh. yeah. And then it was a, a dramatic, um, jacket core separation. And so we're talking maybe eight inches of, of penetration. Um, and it was a frontal shot. And so it was a bit of muscle tissue to get through there and, and some thin bone. Uh, but that was about it. Um, and then a, another outstanding instance was a, another pronghorn. This was a 300 rum. This was a, uh, a heavier weight match profile bullet, pretty high launch velocity on it. And I want to say that the, the target was about a hundred between 140 and 160 yards. Um, and the, the shot angle was a goofy one and it was fleeting. I wasn't the shooter. I was with the, the fellow who was, um, and we had the opportunity to drive the bullet into the thoracic by placing it just over where I guess we'll, we'll say the hip or the ilium was on that animal. And effectively the track would have been through the back third of the back strap, through the diaphragm, and then into the thoracic cavity. Um, that jacket we recovered still in the backstrap of the animal. We never accounted for the core. Um, the diaphragm remained unperforated. Um, the heart and lungs were well intact and we never found an exit. I, I don't have a good, um, I guess, anatomical explanation as to why that animal died other than it got hit by a freight train. Um, and, and immediately the jacket and the core had separated itself and the, and the jacket was, picturesque right so there's like a a 40 grain piece of copper material um, Mm. that looked like a bullet so uh, it died from shock which is one of the ways that you can effectively kill i Uh, I typically though you're using and that was you said with 300 rum that was a big caliber yeah big yeah yeah Yeah. and i I think what what did it is if i had to guess the the proximity of that bullet's impact to like the spinal column uh, probably pressurized all that cerebrospinal fluid and like popped its brain and and positively killed it i mean he was dead right there uh but by all i mean i looked at that i was like well we shouldn't do those things with these bullets like it's just (laughs) so i have i have a similar story about that Uh, actually one of the guys i was just with in africa uh i think it was actually this year or excuse me last fall uh Mm -hmm. went uh sheep hunting up in uh canada and he had a 6.5 prc and was hunting with a one of hornady's match loads from it killed his sheep no problem you know sheep aren't tremendous animals or anything like that and they're not known for being super tough wasn't a challenging shot but on that hunt he also had an opportunity to shoot a mountain caribou and mountain caribou are you know so they're bigger than deer but they're smaller than elk in general so we're you know talking about a good size but not gigantic animal he shot this animal at i want to say about 600 yards on the shoulder and it fell down and it kind of slid down the mountain towards him so it was a steep uphill shot for that first hit hit it and um, it slid maybe 100 yards closer to him and then struggled to its feet, turned around, shot it again in the opposite shoulder, went mm-hmm. down after that. And they ended up, uh, he, he died pretty quickly. They recovered it. And when they were butchering it, 
the guys were like, geez, how many times did you shoot this thing? It looks like you shot this thing like six times with all the fragments that are everywhere. It's like, listen, I just shot it twice. Once in, once in each shoulder. Uh, but neither one went more than about halfway through the animal. And there were just pieces of it everywhere in it. And that was a, that was a long ish shot. I mean, the six, five PRC, it's got some, got some juice to it. It's moving a couple hundred feet per second faster than a six, five Creed born, but we're, we're still not talking like a Weatherby cartridge or anything like that with uh, ridiculously high velocities and at a longer range like that. Mm-hmm. Huh? Um, I have, I, this wasn't match ammunition, but it, it, I think it certainly applies to the conversation. Uh, when you talk about bullet fragmentation, on my first trip to Africa, I shot a red heart beast at 370 yards. And I was prone, laying down. You know, I think I had uh, Gen 2 Vortex uh, Razor on there. Yeah, very nice uh, optic. And so I was like, I know I made a good shot. You know, there wasn't really any wind. My pH is like, you shot over him, like by a mile. And I'm like, there's no way. Well, the bullet, and we were actually, we had a little elevation, so shooting down at him. But the bullet went into the heart beast and essentially broke into two and half of it went out of his back and it made it gave the uh, illusion that i had shot well over his back and so the heart of beast and this is on their youtube it's quite funny because carl's like well over him and he, you could tell he's annoyed like how is this idiot shoot sitting here prone and then <laughs> shooting 20 feet over the thing's back like and then he goes oh wait i'm sorry never mind he's dead <laughs> and the thing had run 20 yards and he got back in the herd and then all of a sudden he started staggering and you could see blood appearing like right on his you know vitals and and the bullet had just i think it must have hit a rib because i didn't hit him in the front shoulder i shot him in the vitals and that bullet basically yeah split in two and a, 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 enough to pick up through the binos and certainly on camera went out the back and and but i, I don't know i've i have not had that situation happen before and that was with the Seven mag, hundred and I think it was hundred and sixty-two grain ELDX. Bullets do wild things when they encounter resistance of of any kind. Um, mm. Directional changes. Uh, I mean, even shooting through like gelatin, which we've done a fair bit here. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty constant medium. There's nothing hard in it. Um, and watching bullets do absolutely bizarre track path through that, it's it's crazy. And so yeah, you throw in a little bit of bone and and varying densities of tissue. Like hide is actually a remarkably resilient surface to try to penetrate it's stretchy um it gives and then you encounter muscle and then you know like cartilaginous tissue and then bone and then lungs are nothing they're pretty much air with a little bit of um you know constitution mixed in and uh yeah bullets do wild things when they hit targets so yeah well i did um i did ask a couple of outfitter friends of mine who you know obviously see a lot of animals get shot every year uh just for their take on match ammunition for hunting so clay pope uh pope brothers outfitting out of west texas i asked him and uh he wrote me back he said i've had trouble with it in shooting long range all dad in west texas and the most problems i've had with it on axis deer at 80 to 100 yards a lot of axis don't bleed very much anyway especially with the 6.5 and a lot of these long range smaller wildcat rounds it seems to do really well on pronghorn but they're what I consider a pretty wimpy species. Specifically, a couple of years ago, four guys came, three had a 6.5, one ran a gun shop, a six millimeter, beautiful, all custom made guns, all shot and wounded axis, and never were able to be recovered. One of the bucks went down immediately and then popped back up and ran after five minutes, all shot with match grade ammo. So he's not a fan of it. 
Uh, and then I also asked my good friend Rob Carringer of Sierra Mesa Whitetail Ranch what he's seen as far as performance goes when his clients have shown up to hunt with match-grade ammunition. Seems like a waste of money. Most shots in Texas are 75 to 100 yards. Not sure we need that level of accuracy. My initial two cents. The bigger impact would be hunters who actually practice and get their scope dialed in before coming on a big hunt. He said, we experience, and I know that there's people in Africa that have done the same thing. My PA just told me. He said, we experience lots of hunters who show up with a borrowed rifle and a new scope they just popped on or someone who just buys new ammo for the heck of it, not really knowing what they're buying. Um, so his take is people, sadly, that's, you know, that sucks to, to hear about our own community that we don't put that time and effort into becoming proficient with our weapon. Uh, but I think that is the reality, unfortunately. That's a really good point. And often like right now you go buy just a, just a regular gun at a Cabela's or whatever, put a, a, you know, a low end vortex scope on it. Not, not dog on a vortex or anything, but you don't have to spend a lot of money to get a good scope. Uh, and then just buy some regular off the shelf hunting factory ammo. You can probably get pretty darn good accuracy these mm -hmm. days, much better than say my grandfather was able to get with, with yeah. the same combination of stuff. And it's not unusual to get one MOA accuracy with just kind of factory stock, nothing special stuff. And you can improve on that. And say you take, uh, say my, uh, you know, my, I have a Bergara hunting rifle that I, uh, I shot a, a pronghorn with last year, Hornady, uh, precision hunter ammo, right at one MOA performance with it. You know, nothing, this wasn't a real high end rifle or anything like that worked great. What more do you get by going with uh, match ammo that may shoot three-quarter MOA or half MOA or something like that? Mm. You're going to have a gigantic step up in improvement from, one, just sighting in your scope appropriately and doing a little bit of practice at the range to get you from, say, a five or a six MOA shooter down to a, down to a one or a two uh, under good conditions like that. And at the same time, you know, one or two MOA is plenty accurate for most people's hunting situations, right? 200 yards, two MOA is still a four inch group. You do everything right uh, there. That's still more than twice as accurate as you really need to shoot to ethically kill a deer or a pronghorn at that range. You take a tiny bit more accuracy. What does it really give you if it's taken away from things on the terminal performance side? That's not to say that shot placement isn't important because it is. It's extremely important. It's the most important thing. But if you are uh, getting a tiny bit better accuracy for more substantial decreases in your terminal performance, then I think you're coming out behind in the long run with that. Hmm. It's, a, it's a difficult thing because we look, um, we look at rifle performance a lot of times like two-dimensionally. Uh, we see a group on paper and or we read a chronograph result and we see these things and like that is what inspires us um, from a confidence standpoint. Like, oh, well, it shoots you know, X sub MOA, right? Um, without understanding maybe a little bit deeper into what happens when a projectile encounters soft tissue and, and how does that projectile behave? And, and again, I, I think a lot of this is, as you guys had mentioned earlier, like the long range shooting craze um, that has come up has inspired a lot of this. And, and, and we're seeing, you know, and I get it all the time. You know, I mentioned wide and open that I, I shoot Barnes projectiles for just about everything. Like I, the first load that I'm going to try in a rifle for hunting is going to be a Barnes bullet, unless it's like a black powder cartridge rifle or it's shooting a 54 caliber round ball. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very likely to be shooting a Barnes and folks be like, why would you 
subjugate yourself to that kind of hamstring sh shooting such a low BC projectile. And they don't, I've heard they don't shoot good or something like that. And, and, and again, we can't just look at, at this two-dimensionally look at what we see on paper, what we see on a, on a chronograph or, or whatever. That is not, in my opinion, what, what makes a, a lethal terminal package. Um, because I, I do think that you have a lot more concessions with that match profile bullet, uh, potentially anyways, while you're in the field, um, than you would a, even a, a modest um, hunting projectile, something with like a bonded cord mm -hmm. and jacket, right? Um, and, you know, looking back at, at shot opportunities, I've, I've been very fortunate that I've pretty much gotten one or two Western trips a year for about the past decade, decade and a half. And so I've had an opportunity to shoot a decent pile of pronghorn and a decent pile of mule deer and a, a handful of Western whitetails. And, um, when I first started doing this, so in 07 was when I started hunting the West, I was, I was 18 years old and I was positive that it was going to be 800 yards or more. And so I had a, mm. a, a rifle commissioned. I got a 300 Weatherby built. Um, the first thing I took with it was a pronghorn at like 87 yards. <laughs> and it was really interesting to me. It was like, okay, wow. I went through all that recoil and cost for 87 yards on the smallest big game species that I could hunt in this state. Mm. Um, and then I, I kind of started keeping track of the shot distances, not looking for long range ones, but just to see what would happen. And, and over the course of like 30 head of game, it's like 275 yards. I mean, the opportunity is not necessarily there for me and, and the places that I hunt or the species that I hunt or even my style of hunting to be presented with shots that would warrant my use of a projectile like that. Not That's not the reason that I don't use them exclusively or otherwise, but it just doesn't happen that often. Um, I killed a mule deer this year at, at 114 yards. Um, open ground, I mean, I, I would have had when I found him, he was at a thousand and nine for my position. I would never even dream about taking the shot, but I, I got to 114 on him. And if I could have gotten to 104, that'd have been great. I'd have done mm. that too. But the, the opportunity to, um, let that rifle, you know, free and breathe, it just doesn't come up that often. And, and so mm. I, I'm also not, I'm not upset or dissuaded or, or feeling that I am hindered in performance by shooting a projectile that is tougher, but has a lower BC or uh, not as slippery a profile. Um, I don't feel like I'm losing anything. I'm also kind of a realist in my abilities, right? Five or mm. 600 yards is an astronomical right. distance in the field. A lot can happen when your time of flight is a third to a half a second or three quarters of a second, depending on, on what you're shooting. An animal takes a step, a wind direction change, uh, wind value change. And all of a sudden we have what we think is a really good shot opportunity turn rotten very quickly. Um, and I've had that happen too. My worst recovery to date was a pronghorn. So here again, 100, 110 pounds with a 300 Weatherby. Oh, and wow. it was, it was a misread on wind. Um, and it was at 501 yards. And I regret every single minute of that, uh, experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, no, no bullet design in the world could have changed that outcome. I killed it, um, and recovered it, but it was, it was just rotten. And that was with a very high stepping rifle. Um, in not that great a distance relative to its capability. Um, and a little bit of breeze took me off target just enough to turn uh, what would have been a rock solid impact into an absolutely rotten one. So, hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of it then comes down to understanding your limitations as a shooter, um, assigning, you know, match profile to your ammunition does not automatically add 200 to 300 yards to your capability. Um, 
at, at least from if you're especially if you're losing, you know, <laughs> if you're losing lethality. Potentially, at, yeah. yeah, yeah, and so. and you know, I I often joke like with my hunting partners and and other guys in our hunting parties is we have to go out of our way to find long distance shots, even in the West. Um, we, we have to set it up, and it, that that robs a bit of the joy for me personally in it. I like yeah. hunting. Um, I like stalking. I like getting in as close as I can. Not, not that that's necessarily what it's all about, but, um, you kind of got to go out of your way to set up that long shot. And then yeah. the number of opportunities that we've had where they are distant, but you have good wind or you have good terrain or you have a, a absolutely durable rest or, or shooting position. Um, it's, it's infrequent at best. And so it's not my thing, but I, I do respect the guys that put in the time sure. to, you yeah. know, think that, that are effective at 800, 900 yards. Yep. It seems crazy to me. Like I yep. said, 400, 500, that's, you know, 500 yards is about what I'm like past that. That's better be ways. rock, rock solid prone, yeah. you know, zero. Um, wind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, gentlemen, let's work in a quick break here. We'll come back and continue with the conversation. That segment was brought to you by big and J whitetail attractants and rustic reminders, taxidermy. We'll be right back on the Lone star outdoor show. Land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over a hundred years. They'll do the same for you. If you're ready to take that next step and make the dream of owning your own land reality, then head over to LoneStarAgCredit.com. Hey guys, Cable here for Armasite. If you're looking to light up the night, whether that's with thermal or night vision, then you need to head over to armorsite.com. That's where you can find all of the thermal and night vision monoculars, uh, thermal weapon sights, and, of course, night vision nods. Yeah, those cool-looking helmets, the one that I have. Yeah, buddy. You can find them over at armorsite.com. They've got it all right there. And even better than that, they've got some new stuff coming down the pike, like the 640 contractor. I've got the 320, 640, even better. You can find it all at armorsite.com. A thousand miles between these two dreams. Life ain't as simple as it once seemed. Both well, Zane Williams bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Cable Smith here with you. This segment brought to you by a very reliable yet ruggedly American-built rifle, and I'm talking about the Mossberg Patriot. Whether you want a beautiful wooden stock or, hey, maybe uh, you're going to beat it up a little bit more, they've got uh, synthetic stocks, and they've got every caliber from 22 250 up to 375 Ruger. You can find the Patriot lineup at Mossberg.com. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get back into our conversation on match-grade ammunition as uh, there's so much to discuss regarding and we've deviated from that. We've talked about other bullets as well, and we'll continue to do that now uh, with John McAdams and Ryan Muckenhern. John, which calibers are most common as far as match ammunition? And uh, this is probably going to parallel, uh, you know, which calibers the serious competition guys are shooting most frequently. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of the really popular just cartridges in general, you're going to find match ammo for it as well, right? Started out with like the 308 federal 
you know, has made 308 ammo in their gold medal line with the Sierra Match King bullet for a long time, and they still do. And then that just kind of applies to almost everything else that you can ever think that someone would have shot competitive with, competitively with, and you know, some other things too. So, I mean, you look at Federal or Nosler or Hornady's line of match ammo, it's going to have a lot of the usual suspects in it to include the 6.5 Creedmoor, all the PRC cartridges, 308, 30-06, 300 Win Mag, et cetera, et cetera. Now, interestingly, you bring up the 6.5 Creedmoor. I think one of the reasons why that cartridge might have, there's there's many reasons why that cartridge has a bad reputation in some circles, but people uh, use it. I've never shot anything other than feral hogs and coyotes with it. I've yeah. never taken this cartridge <laughs> big game hunting. And the reason why is because, well, I have a 270. I have a 300 Win Mag. Uh, I don't think you can kill a white-tailed two dead. People are like, why, why did you shoot the buck with a 300 wind mag through both front shoulders? I'm like, because he died right there, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why. And, uh, and, I, and I like watching him die right there. It makes me happy to see he didn't suffer, and then I don't have to track him. But I think part of the reason why that cartridge got such a bad reputation was there were a lot of people to start out with that were taking shots at way too long a range with it and hunting with match ammo with it, too. Mm-hmm. And using like an 800-yard the- shot on a Rocky Mountain elk. Yeah, like, with with the probably not the best idea with a match bullet, right. but you turn that into a 300 yard shot or a 200 yard shot with a 127 grain Barnes LRX and the flip the script flips completely there. That's a whole mm-hmm. different ball game with that cartridge. I'd rather use a lighter cartridge with a great bullet like a Barnes, but some other ones as well than a really heavy hitting cartridge like a 300 rum with a crummy bullet for the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about shot placement and we talk a lot about different situations. And I think people in their mind, when they're visualizing things, they're looking at things under sort of ideal situations, right? Oh, my shot placement is going to be good. Cause I'm going to use this really accurate rifle and this really accurate ammo. And it's going to be great. And I'm going to place it where it needs to go. And as long as I do my part, everything is great. We live in the real world though. Right. Uh, you know, Ryan mentioned, uh, you know, the wind changing on him. Or the animal taking a step, you know, those are things that are out of your control that can cause you to uh, completely miss or wound the animal. You can also just screw up and make a bad shot too. And that happens. You know, I've done it. We've all done it. There was a, a client I had in Africa a couple of years ago, hunting blue wildebeest with a 30 out six, nothing wrong at all with a 30 out six, not a long shot. And wildebeest are Big-ish animals, but they're not giant, but they are yeah, really Yeah, but tough. the blue wildebeest, is, <laughs> they, they, they are call tough. them uh, bullet eaters. Or... or the poor man's Cape Buffalo, right? Yeah. But you make a good shot with a 30 out 6 it's going to run 50 yards, and it's going to die. Well, he had a quartering shot on this wildebeest and shot it a little bit too far back. And so I think he just nicked the edge of the lungs, liver, guts. Fortunately for him, he was using 180-grain swift A-frame which just plowed all the way through that animal and it broke his hind leg as it exited Hmm. and it went a long way, but because that leg was broken, it slowed it down a little bit. And it also had kind of a weird track for that reason. And the trackers were able to more easily identify, okay, this is your wildebeest here separate from the herd. And they were able to kill it uh, after a long, but a follow-up shot, but not as long as it would have been if you would have been using a bullet that would not have exited under Hmm. those conditions. I think as much as I love Hornady ammunition, you know, an ELD match in that uh, situation probably wouldn't have exited. And they probably would have found that wildebeest, but it would have been a whole lot more difficult of a follow-up shot. 180 grain Barnes would have probably been similar to that A-frame. Same thing with a partition, something like that. 
So those are the situations where you really make your money with a really good, tough hunting bullet. 150-yard broadside shot on an elk or a deer, you could place a 100-grain or 80-grain 243 behind the shoulder through the lungs, and it's probably going to kill it. But things change a whole lot when you're take, talking about a strongly quartering shot where you got to go through that front shoulder, all that muscle, that shoulder blade, before you, and then the ribs before you even get to the heart and the lungs. And that's where you separate the men from the boys uh, with, with that sort of thing. And some cartridges and bullets are up to it, and other ones are not. Yeah, my son hunts with a 80-something grain, 243 mm-hmm. bullet. Um, I think he's using Federal Fusion... What is that? Would that be mm-hmm. vital? Sh- no, it's not vital shock. What is the? Well, there is a fusion. Federal fusion. Line. Yeah, yeah fusion. federal fusion. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking of the box is like a goldish color. Yeah, uh, that's the fusion. Shiny. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like an 80 grain bullet. He's killed a buck each for the past two seasons, and they both dropped right there. Mm-hmm. Now the second one, you know, he shot in the neck because I'm not trying to shoot through the front shoulders with with a 243. Right? I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. we're shooting in the vitals now because we. We don't have the knockdown power of dad's 300 wind mag. So I'm like, okay, Henry, he's broadside, put it right behind his front shoulder. Like we talked about, boom, buck drops, which I'm like, well, that doesn't really make sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. a vital shot, that thing's going to run. Not far, but he's going to run. We get up there. I'm like, hey, great shot. You know, he died right here. Perfect. Where'd you shoot him? He goes right behind the shoulder like you told me to. There's a huge hole in the damn deer's neck. Like (laughs) (laughs) he got buck fever and I was like, well, okay, you know, this is, this is buck fever. And sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. The point is the deer is dead right here. So congratulations, you know, and obviously very proud of him, but yeah, it was uh, one of those things where he learned like real quick, I shot perfectly on the range. And then now I'm applying it to a hunting situation and the bullet did not go where I was trying to put it. So So how do we learn from this as a 10 year old? More practice more experience yeah Yeah. and that is also a good example too not necessarily this example but the fact that we make bad shots sometimes is also i think a reason why i would rather have something that provides more than enough performance for the situation that i'm hunting on as opposed to something using something that's barely adequate when everything is perfect so i'm Mm -hmm. going to show you something here um so this is is part of a feral hog shoulder blade. I shot it, so the bottom part of it is gone. But you can uh-huh. see just generally how how big it is. This is an elk shoulder blade. I mean, it is so much bigger. Yeah. At the bottom here, it's super thick. I mean, this thing is almost as thick as uh, my son's wrist. And if a bullet went had to go through that, that's asking a lot of it there. And I tried it- to put a, a hundred grain broadhead through an elk shoulder at uh-huh. sixty three yards one time. Didn't work. Yeah, Had no penetration. <laughs> that elk ran off, laughing at me with just a little more than a flesh wound. Like I, we found the arrow, it was like two inches of penetration. It, it was a joke to him, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was the that's the longest shot I've taken with a bow on a big game animal. Probably, probably wouldn't do it again. Well, I say that, but the next season I'd up my arrow uh, significantly as far as the weight and went to 125 grain broadhead, so that if I did make, you know, the wind pushed it three or four inches forward. Maybe I could break that shoulder, but yeah, those, I mean, that's a, that's a big piece of bone that you're trying to get through, John. It is. And then you got the ribs behind it. And depending on the angle, you're shooting through a bunch of muscle and then the hide and all of that. That's very different from a situation where it's hitting behind the shoulder and sneaking in between two ribs mm-hmm. and, and hitting the lungs like that, where you have very little penetration is necessary in that situation. Whereas you may need, gosh, almost two feet of penetration 
through bone, part of it through bone, in order just to even start affecting the vitals from a different shot angle on a different animal. So we're all uh, adult men who can handle big calibers. And I'm assuming that when you're in Africa, your pH would tell you or the other guys that you're hunting with, on the shoulder, please, on the shoulder, break his shoulder. I do the same thing pretty much unless it's a white-tailed doe. Every other animal I'm shooting, I'm shooting, if it's, if it's a trophy, I'm shooting through the shoulders to break it down. Um, Ryan, what about you? So I, I, I still actively shoot structure um, uh-huh. yeah. and for everything. And, and something that I tell myself is I'd rather lose two pounds of meat than 200. Right. Right. And, and good analogy. When, yeah. When we're really looking at it, like if you've ever, if you've ever uh, field quartered a, a whitetail or a mule deer or a uh, pronghorn, and if you smack it square in the scapula and you're losing that, whatever cut of meat that is, I mean, on a pronghorn, it's like a serving. And it's unfortunate because there's not a lot there, but if I break his running gear, he can't run. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and very likely if I place my projectile there, I've done everything else that I can do. I'm, I'm probably taking out an aorta. I'm probably definitely taking out lungs. I'm maybe even taking out the heart, depending on how low I was on that shoulder. Um, yeah. So I, I try to shoot structure whenever I have the opportunity to. Um, and when I don't have the opportunity to, um, I'm looking at where is my bullet's path going to go to encounter structure. This is also part of the reason why I shoot projectiles like the Barnes TTSX and LRX, um, because there have been opportunities where I, I have to get through something less than optimal or completely not optimal in order to get to that. My favorite recovery, um, it's the only Barnes bullet I've ever recovered from a body cavity. I dug one out of the bank behind a coyote that I shot one time <laughs> with an odd six. But I shot a mule deer. Um, this is a few years ago. It's 2019. Um, bedded shot, frontal, which is not that ideal, right? I mean, if you're really looking at what your vital zone is, it's a little bit larger than a loaf of bread. Um, left or right and high of that, and you might just be kind of presenting yourself with like a raking impact, and, and you might not actually hit anything good. You might disrupt them enough that you can pump another one into it. Um, but like... I had very limited time to take the shot um, relative to when legal sundown was. Um, I had terrible wind. I had weather coming in, blah, blah, blah. I had a frontal shot and I was going to take it and he was bedded. Um, And I shot, this was a 308 Winchester, 130 grain Barnes TTSX, so light for caliber. Um, And it was like 147 yards or something like that. I recovered that bullet like just about at the hips of the deer. Um, after it had traveled down the spinal column through seven vertebrae, I excised a vertebrae, I pulled it out and the bullet was sitting inside of, of that, uh, that vertebral column that where the spine actually, or the spinal cord runs through. And I mm-hmm. popped it out into my hand and I threw it in my pocket. When I got home, it weighed 129 grains and a little plastic tip on there. It's nominally one grain. Um, so that was like a 34 inch journey that that projectile went through, um, before it came to an at rest position if my shot would have been the other direction and he would have been facing away and I had to take it, um, I'm very confident that that projectile at least would have gotten through that diaphragm and into the thoracic and started to trash lungs and, and heart and cardiovascular tissue as well. Um, and it, it was just, it was just awesome to see one light for caliber. Um, and two, like what I exemplify is really pure copper performance where, where just ninja bullet blender through the entire thing mm. and, and the inside of him from, um, brisket back was just pink slush. 
when you uh, see something like that, though, the, the level of confidence that gives you in that bullet, I, yeah. I mean, it, that's amazing. You're like, yeah, well, well, I know this works. Here's yep. the evidence. And, and that's just the only one I've recovered, I guess. I've, I've, mm. I don't go out of my way to take full frontal or um, facing away shots, especially. I think every animal he's shots. told us about, John, has been a frontal shot. So I don't know. <laughs> a, a couple, a couple. Um, my my pronghorn last year that was 334 yards, um, slight quartering away uphill. Um, I knew I was going to impact further back in the rib cage, but I knew that the track was going to exit out the off shoulder, and that's exactly what it did, um, and folded him like a five dollar tent. And when I got up on him, you know, I was just in front of the diaphragm on the entrance, uh, but you know a little bit further back on the rib cage and that exit was just clean out the center of the shoulder. Mm. And of course he had, he had nothing to hold him up at that point in time. And it was just devastating on the, on the way through. That's exactly why I shoot those bullets because I, I really can't predict the shot angle. I, I can do my best to take it when it's available and, and perfect. And I, I pursue that, right? Like that's what we're all, we're going for, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. And I do want a projectile that if my opportunity on that hunt is my exit is great. Awesome. I'm going to take that. Um, and I'm going to use a bullet that's going to do it. And I'm going to do it within, you know, reason of my capabilities as a shooter. And then the limitations that that bullet has, mm. you know, which they all do to some degree. Um, and they, they've worked famously for me. I've, I've never experienced the, um, cataclysmic failures that I've read about from, from those particular projectiles. And honestly, part of the reason why we dive kind of both feet first into like cartridge talks here at Vortex and, and we, why we talk about bullets ad nauseum is because most of us here have heard horror stories from folks that have had like suboptimal performance out of a given projectile or a cartridge, especially For me, cartridges. it's Remington Corlock. That was like, I shot an Axis tier one time with that and was like, never again. And, and Never again. That was 15 years ago. Right. And we've heard that, but it's the cheap, it was the cheapest bullet, right? Sure. Like that's, that's why very early in my hunting career, I think it was before I even did this, I was just like, well, this is what I can afford. You know, yeah. I've, I've been bartending and I've got 20 bucks for a box of bullets. Yeah. Here you go. And yeah, this is we've heard it with every bullet and we've heard it with the best of the best and the, the uh, most entry level of the most entry level. And, and, and kind of all the same script, either it didn't expand and it penciled right through or it grenaded on impact or, or something along those lines. And for us, it's like, well, certainly all these projectiles can't fail in the same manner, right? I, it doesn't stand to reason that if I take a bullet that has an extraordinarily thin jacket and I impact a target at extraordinarily high velocities, that I should expect full metal jacket-like characteristics, right? That mm. the projectile shouldn't just zip through. It should delaminate and, and we should have like a fragmentation wound of some kind or a flap injury. Like that would be the um, the logical failure of that projectile. Um, and then I've, I've heard, you know, uh, my favorite one is with Barnes. Well, if you shoot the animal too close, the bullet doesn't have time to expand. And that works backwards on, <laughs> on like how a Barnes or a Hornady CX or a Hornady GMX or a Trophy Copper would work. Ideally, you are closer to that animal. It, it then in, expands, in fact. Um, and so that's really why we jumped into it is to try to unpack why bullets do what they do when they're supposed to. And then probably more importantly, what happened when they don't do what they're supposed to? Like what, mm. what led to that perceived failure. bullet failure, right? Yeah. Um, another thing, and, and I'll say from like a hand loader's perspective, not to, not to rant here too much. I've gotten about all I can out of um, metallic cartridge reloading from like a performance standpoint, right? So I'm not 
I'm not a competition shooter. Um, I don't, I'm not seeking F class world records, um, things like this. Like I enjoy metallic cartridge reloading, uh, probably more than most. Right. But I enjoy it because it's like therapeutic and it's the only arts and craft project I've ever been good at. Um, and, and I've gotten to a point in my personal ability in which I, I know I can get good, reliable and consistent ammunition, um, out of the projectiles that I like to shoot and the cartridges that I like to shoot them in. Now my, my obsession is terminal performance. Like how does a bullet kill? Um, mm -hmm. I think we have really, really solid theories on that. Um, and, and I, you know, think that the ballisticians at companies like Hornady and Barn and Nosler and, and, and Remington and Winchester and federal are, are all way smarter than I'll ever get. Um, but when I still hear these stories about projectile X, Y, or Z failing with failure mode, A, B, or C, and it's, it's throughout all of them, there has to be something more to it. Yeah, sometimes there's just no explanation as to why bullets do certain things and uh, animals react the way that they do. And something that I've been paying attention to um, is the animal's condition of alert at the time of shot. Um, my longest recovery to date is 193 yards on a whitetail. It's the biggest whitetail I've ever killed, too. Um, I shot that deer at 32 yards with a 50 caliber muzzleloader, wow. and I punched it right behind the shoulders. And I actually thought I lost that deer because like 60 yards from the impact site, I'm doing circles and I'm like my hands and knees in the snow, no blood, nothing. I can see where he was standing when I shot. I can see where he jumped and where he landed and where he ran. And I followed these tracks literally on my hands and knees, not a drop of blood. And I sat back down on my, my tree there. I was sitting on a little, like a little stool and I'm like, okay, mathematically impossible that I missed that shot. Like, I have a peep sight, I have a front sight, and I had nothing but thoracic cavity. Like, it just doesn't make sense that I missed that shot. And so I started looking a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further, and I got to like 66 yards. And all of a sudden, I just see like the faintest essence of blood in the snow. Like if you dipped your fingers in a glass and you just kind of misted it and it landed there. And I thought, okay. So I keep going and I keep going and I keep going. And then at about 170 yards from impact site, I started seeing meaningful blood. I'm like, boy, I really goofed this up. And then there he was at 193 yards. And that last 20 yards, it looked like you just took two five-gallon buckets and painted the woods, right? And I thought, well, that's odd. I take him apart and I, I have a picture of me holding um, the lung somewhere. And like right where the uh, uh, trachea break branches off into the bronchial tubes that lead into the lungs. There's like a 50 caliber hole through that thing. I mean, by every textbook definition, that deer should have made it 30 yards and completely expired. Why didn't he? Um, there's blood all over the place at the recovery site and hardly anything up into that. Um, his body cavity was effectively empty and everything looked exactly perfect. And so I go back into this thing and I was like, well, what, what happened here? And when he had come out, he was pursuant to two does and my rifle was on shooting sticks facing left. I had anticipated this deer coming from my left. He came from my right and he's very close. And now I have like a very finite amount of time to get that rifle from here to here, engage and shoot. And so in the time that I grabbed my rifle, slowly cocked my hammer and swung over, he caught my motion or sound and he leapt up in the air, landed and looked right at me. And so now he's on high alert. And he's adrenaline filled. This is all assumption, of course. He's adrenaline filled and like ready to bolt. And then I drop the hammer on him and off he takes. And after that, it was interesting. 
hunting with either myself or my hunting partners, animals that knew that they were being pursued or knew that the, that the jig was up, so to speak, um, reacted differently unless they were hit in central nervous system tissue or unless they were, they were hit in like both shoulders and we broke down their ability to move. If they were hit heart and lung and it wasn't absolutely, totally and absolutely incapacitating to the, to the internal structure of that animal, they'd often make it further. And then sometimes when they were relaxed and you get, you get a behind the shoulder shot in, in, in the lungs, they just fold. And it was like, well, what is the difference here? And I think that, I think that that animal's condition of alert also has a lot to do with their reaction on, on the impact. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I'm trying to take pretty diligent notes of while doing necropsies and while looking at, um, internal damage. And, and I'm finding that bullets aside, um, cartridge aside, an animal that's alert oftentimes reacts very differently than an animal that isn't. And th- that might cause somebody to say, well, well, that bullet is absolute junk because that thing made it 110 yards after I shot it right. and then piled up dead. Well, there was a lot that went into that prior to that bullet impacting that target. What was that prey animals um, like psychological condition at that point in time? And was he charged in prime for a run? Um, or was he lackadaisical and unaware of anything that was around him? And all of a sudden, gets hit by 2000, you know, foot pounds of energy and a hot rod of lightning running through them. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it definitely seems to make a difference, or at least my observation is that it does. And, and I think that a lot of people deeming a bullet failure might be encountering something like that. You know, it might be on the second shot. It might be on the third shot. Um, or that animal might've just, you know, been running like wild because it heard them open the box blind window up or something like that and paused briefly uh, enough for a shot. So more to come on that, I guess. I need, I need uh, a few more targets of opportunity to, to really. That's interesting that you out. say that because I shot a buck this past year. Yeah. With a 300 wind mag and I shot him um, when he was on high alert. I, I don't know if the wind shifted. I mean, he was 150 yards away mm-hmm. walking away from the feeder. I never had a shot until it, he was there when the sun came up. So I'm waiting, you know, for, for legal shooting time. And now he's walking away and he, I think he either heard the window go up or the wind shifted, but now his head is up mm-hmm. and I shot him and killed him, but he ran like 250 yards mm-hmm. and it took, I don't know, two hours to find him. Yeah. It was really thick, but yeah. would, would and you did, have and it didn't at, bleed a lot either. Would you have looked at that impact site and been like, oh, I was a rotten shot or was everything else by your regular criteria? Like, Oh, that, well, that doesn't make sense. I that felt bullet- like I made a good shot. Right. Yeah. But, but, his reaction made me think, Oh man, did, what, did you pull the shot or, yep. you know, what, but no, I think it was, it was the same shot I typically would make, but he was like, you said, now it's all making sense. Like he was, he knew something was going on. Yeah. So he wasn't, you know, calmly feeding or, or just relaxed or whatever. Yep. Um, I don't know, John, if you've experienced anything like that. I've experienced that exact thing that you were talking about. I shot a doe many years ago that she was eating and then another doe came in that she didn't want to be there. So she got real agitated at that other doe and kept running her off and all of that. And so she was really amped up from um, that. Not, not Had no idea that I was there, but she was really upset. And so I shot her, found out later, great shot, annihilated her vitals, both both lungs and the top of the heart. That's the longest I've ever had an animal run. She wow. left a tremendous blood trail, so it was not hard to follow her. But man, she really got after it. And I was like, holy cow, what the, how much, how much further is this doe going to go? She can't have any blood left in her body. And it's also important to notice, note too, that with all of this stuff, 
individually we're dealing with very small sample sizes, right? Yeah. If you've killed, if you've killed 20 elk in your life, you're in the top 1% of elk hunters out yeah. there. And we're talking about, you know, one, one off incidents of doing this and that. And it's, uh, especially when something really, really good happens or really, really bad happens, like you with the core locks or, you know, you shoot something and it just drops right there on the spot. You're like, oh, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. Or this is the worst thing ever. And it may be, or it just may have been a fluke thing that happens sometimes. And since it happened once, uh, you either want to do it again or not do it again. And, you know, who knows if that's uh, an accurate representation, if you would have done that thing a million times. Right. 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 That's a good point to bring up. I also, uh, I did shoot what you said about this doe that you shot made me think of a doe that, that I shot and I had thrown, I was in a pop-up and I had put out some like big and J or something. And so this doe feeds in, there's like two of them. Uh, and she starts blowing I'm like you little bitch. Now I'm going to have to kill you. But she walked off and she came back. She came back. She's like, something's not right. I, you know, I think the pop-up's close. It was like 25 yards away. Um, and she blows again. And I'm like, okay, now I'm going to shoot you. And I did, but she was on high alert. Perfect shot right through the vitals. And she, and she took off. And I'm like, I know I smoked her. No blood for like 80 yards. None. Jeez. And then it was like what you said, uh, Ryan, about uh, that white tail buck that you shot with your muzzle loader. Then all of a sudden it was like a crime scene. And I yeah. mean, she was, but she made it a lot, shot right through the vitals, like with the, with a slick trick broadhead, fixed blade. I mean, it did some serious internal damage. And it took her a good 80 yards to even start bleeding to where you're now you're again, going back to that. Did I make a bad shot? I know I made a good shot. Like what, you know, every, everything lined up and then, you know, but where's the blood? Well, I don't know. Just, whatever she was had going on, uh, prevented that blood trail from, from happening where you, you thought it should have been and it prolonged her. Another curious thing I've seen. Um, if you hit the heart and you hit it just right. And I don't know, necessarily how to define just right but mm -hmm. if you hit it if you hit it in such a fashion that it completely stops functioning and i'm talking like complete and total uh permanent atrophy of that that tissue um and it can't pump you mm -hmm. often will see less expulsion out of the body cavity huh um yeah. and and i think i think that's something that we should look at too or, or try to understand a little bit better if i damage a thing that makes the stuff fling out the sides um and it can't do that we're reliant on that cavity filling up, getting to that entry or exit hole and then spilling out, yeah. um, you know, versus like if you hit an artery and the, the musculature of the heart is still intact and it's still firing, you're going to get this dramatic um, spray out both sides. Right. And if we've seen that before, it's like, well, holy buckets, like we can follow this in the dark. Yeah. Uh, but if yeah. you smash that thing and it just, there's physically nothing there to push blood and, and the, what do you have to expel it from the body cavity short of like the lungs being intact and filling up and like creating a pressure situation in which you can pump it out. But, uh, it's, it's always a fascinating thing. Like what happens at impact and then just after, um, that results in either, uh, a spectacular recovery or a lot of anxiety until you're fortunate enough to walk up on it. Right. How many animals do you think it lost where you, the hunter made, a perfectly fine shot, but, and I'll give you uh, one more example as we're kind of wrapping things up here. The first elk I ever killed with a bow, New Mexico, 11,000 feet, called in by myself, this Texan, it's like, oh, you know, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And I make a shot. He's quartering slightly towards me at like 18 yards. Yeah. I'm, I'm kneeling down. I shoot. 
And I, I know that I hit the elk. Um, he turns and, and he runs and I can't find my arrow and I can't find any blood. I'm pretty confident I've, I've made a lethal shot. I call my buddy on the satellite phone. He's up at camp cause he ate some, he ate some of those, um, green chilies that the hatch green chilies that New Mexico is famous for. I told him not to do it, but he ate it <laughs> at the last place we ate before we went to the mountain. So he has wiped his butt raw and he's like, on day three, he's like, I can't hunt today. He's like, I just can't. I can't move. My butt hurts too much. I'm like, okay. Well, I'm going to go. You stay here. So anyway, I call him. He's like, I'll be right there. So he, you know, it takes him about an hour and a half, two hours to get down to me. And I'm on hands and knees, can't find any blood. And sometimes it takes another set of eyes. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, this looks like where he, like a, a hurt animal's track would have been right here. He's going to run downhill. We ended up finding the elk. Um, probably less than 100 yards from where I shot him. Very close. And he didn't bleed at all. But what had happened was I had hit his liver and that arrow had gone through body cavity and then hit femoral artery in the back leg, but no exit. So the, the, the arrow is like, like just almost sticking out. Like if it would have gone through, there'd have been blood everywhere, but yeah. the animal's body cavity filled up with blood. He expired very, very quickly. He's probably yep. dead within minutes. But, yep. um, but I wonder how many hunters lose animals where you've made that 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 kill shot it's a good shot yeah but the freak thing happens and there's no there's no blood and you're now you're second guessing or you know you just you don't find the animal i'm I'm certain it's more than less right but an mm-hmm. undefinable like I, i'm not saying that i wrote that whitetail off but I had to sit down and really, really think about my life for a while there. Like how I was in the depths of despair. Yes. Like, <laughs> my buddy was the one that recovered it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I look at that and, and cutting that thing apart. It's like, oh, everything was perfect. Like I, I guess mm. I didn't goof up, um, but it just didn't do what I, my expectation was. Right. Yeah. And I went on to, you know, kill probably four or five more critters with that exact muzzleloader, that exact projectile and had completely different results. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and not dissimilar shot placements and not dissimilar opportunities at the shot and, and like yielded something dramatically different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm certain a lot. I'm sorry. I guess the, the, the moral there is just when you think you've looked enough, just look a little bit more. Yes. Look a little bit more, six yards more, yeah. six yards. There, more. there was a, a thing that made the inter- rounds of the internet, maybe 20 years ago, uh, I wouldn't call it a scientific study, but it was some information that a hunting club, I think in South Carolina put out, uh, after a couple of years of hunting. And they said, basically anytime anyone ever shot at a deer, they kept kind of detailed records of what the guy used, how far the deer uh, was away, what he shot it with, where they shot it, how far it went, blah, blah, blah. And I want to say that they said like 15 to 20% of all the deer that they'd shot over the course of a couple of years gave zero indication that they were hit when they ran off. And almost all those deer, they ended up recovering. Uh, If they couldn't do it themselves, they'd bring in a dog and get it, something like that. And I think it was maybe less than 5% of deer that were shot at were either missed or, um, or excuse me, all the less than 5% of the deer that they shot uh, and hit, they lost. Uh, So, Mm. but it was was some of them that had some kind of long tracking jobs like that, that there was no blood up until the deer was lying there and they needed a dog to find it. Well, yep. the dog makes all the difference. Um, one more question for you, John. And I mean, you've seen the dogs work in Africa. Uh, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and in Texas, you know, we have these uh, blue laces, also great tracking dogs. I've never had to use one on a deer that I've, I've shot personally, but I've seen 
seen them working in the South Texas brush, recovering a deer for another guy. Pretty cool. Uh, but on your recent trip, what caliber did you shoot your, your blue wildebeest? Because Carl, my PH refers to them as lead eating sons of bitches. Uh, so I shot tough animals. Yeah. So I shot him with the seven PRC. Okay. And so we shot three between us. One guy shot his with a 300 wind mag, 200 grain terminal ascent. No big deal. Ran 50 yards. No problem. I shot mine with 160 grain CX out of my uh, seven PRC. He dropped to the shot, but I had a weird shot angle on him. His rear was facing straight towards me and he uh, was eating and didn't look like he was going to move. And we were had just minutes left of shooting light. 70 yards away and he turned back to look at me and so i shot him in the neck and so he dropped right there it's the only only situation i would have taken that shot in but at the same time maybe within five minutes of me shooting that that uh blue wildebeest the other guy that was out there with us also shot a blue wildebeest hit it straight through the vitals with a 270 grain tsx from a 375 ruger and that Golly. wildebeest went several hundred yards before they found it perfect yeah. shot and it yeah. wasn't that hard to find it left a good trail and everything but it went a long way before he killed over yeah what oh, do you man. what do you think led led to that result um that wildebeest i heard was had no idea that they were there so yeah. per perfectly calm and he made a good shot on it but i think this is one of those things where they're tough animals and yeah. some are tougher than others and i think this one had just a very strong will to live and they are a herd animal. He was a big bull with, with a herd. And oftentimes with things like that, you'll see with the rest of the herd runs off, they do their darndest to stay with them. And so as long as they're running, that's, that's, you know, that herd is their survival and they're going to do everything they can to stay with it. And I think he ran until he couldn't physically couldn't run any further. And then, then killed yeah. over. What, and what bullet did he, you said 275 grains out of a 375 Ruger. That's, I think, what I shot my Cape Buffalo was with the 375 Ruger. Yeah, so you shot it probably with either a 300 or yeah. with a 270, and so they yeah. used a 270 Barnes in this case. Okay. It exited and it left a, you know so, a good okay. blood trail. So it wasn't it exited. It wasn't super hard to find, uh, but uh, but it just ran a long way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, cool stuff, my friends. I certainly appreciate y'all jumping on today. Uh, interesting conversation, and and I love uh, I love just. You know, we all have our own personal experiences and, and think the way that we do based off of those experiences. But um, I think when you, you talk about this kind of stuff to help educate uh, folks on, hey, maybe don't just pick up the, the match ammunition off the shelf if there's another option there. And think about why you're picking this bullet over this one uh, based off of your goals and whatever it is that you're pursuing. So um, y'all check it out. Uh, the Vortex Nation podcast. Uh, or you guys have so many things now. You have 10 minute talks. You have, uh, you and Mark do the spaghetti shootout. Yeah. yeah. And the, the one that I watched was 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have, uh, the new, the new cartridge conversations. Uh, that's brand spanking new. And then John, obviously the, uh, the big game hunting podcast. Uh, what is your, what is your website, social media? So really, actually, the place I send most people to is a place where they can sign up for my email list, uh, huntingguns101.com. Uh -huh. Sign up there, get a free ebook on uh, hunting cartridges, and then you get the emails I send out every weekday where I talk about stuff like this in them all of the time. Very interesting yeah. things. I get I get emails from people saying that, man, I look forward to, to 5.55 p.m. Central Time every day when I get, uh, get your email. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, fellas. Y'all enjoy the rest of your summer. And uh, we'll do it again sometime on down the road. Appreciate you. It was an honor. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks Take a lot care. for having me. All right. So there you have it. Everything that you need to, or maybe you didn't need to know, uh, on match ammunition for hunting. And then uh, we deviated into various 
bullet selections and uh, why projectiles do what they do upon entering an animal. Uh, fascinating stuff, nonetheless. That segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders, Blinds, and Smokers. Uh, you can find it all, their lineup of each, right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Got to go, got to get out of here. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I would buy for you diamond or myself some gasoline. If I can't afford you, darling, then I can't afford to dream. And is it time I should be moving? Is it time I settle down?